You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Josh and Jason Monday Christian Naked Conspiracy Podcast Show. I am your host, Josh Monday. If you don't know me, I'm a Christian rapper, devoted husband, father, and army veteran. And uh, my co-host today, Jason, is actually going to be off. You know, uh, he's 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 actually at work. So um, we have a very you know special lineup for you guys, a roundtable. Um, first off, we have uh, I'll introduce you guys to Ali Sayadatan. Um, his DVD is UFOs, Angels, and Gods. If you guys could check that out, you could order it on his website. Um, Ali, uh, if if you want to unmute, you could you could say hi to everybody real quick and let them know. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. Really looking forward to the discussion. Yes, Think Again Productions. Okay, go to Think Again Productions. Is it thinkagainproductions.com, Ali? Yes, that's okay. correct. Go, go to thinkagainproductions.com. You guys could check out, and he also has a YouTube page with amazing information and um. And and he, he's he's actively posting right now, so definitely I suggest you guys check that out. Our next guest is going to be Derek Gilbert, and I don't have all nine of his books, but I have this one right here. This one is going to be <laughs> the second coming of Saturn. So this is like his most recent book. Okay, guys, so don't get crazy on me. But Derek, how you doing? Thank you so much for joining us. Doing fine, doing fine. Life is good here in the Ozarks. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. And then next up, I do have two of Ryan's books, though. So don't get mad at me, Derek. Okay. So we got uh, Ryan Peterson's, uh, first of all, The Judgment of the Nephilim is the first book. Okay, guys, check that out. And then second book is The Final Nephilim, Ryan Peterson. And um, thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us again. Uh, you know, you've been on our show so many times and 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 uh, Ali as well and Derek. Thank you guys so much. But how's it going, Ryan? Great. It's going great. Excited to be on. You know, I haven't done an interview in, in a while, so this is a great way to get back into things. Ali, Derek, excited to uh, have this discussion tonight. It's going to be fun. Thank you. And also, guys, check out his YouTube, Judgment of the Nephilim. Uh, he has Thursday Theology, where he does a question and answer type deal. You guys can send in some questions to Ryan. He'll be happy to answer. He has gentlemen like Derek on. Hopefully, he'll have Ali on in some time. Um, but he has guests on sometimes he just does it solo and, and he does an amazing job. So please check out his YouTube. Please subscribe to uh, Gilbert House. It also is the YouTube for, for Derek Gilbert and uh, check out his information. Everything is amazing. So, guys, today we're going to be having a roundtable on Gog and Magog. And then, you know, in the end, maybe we could do like a little Battle of Armageddon, you know, something like that. So, um, but yeah, this is going to be a roundtable and I'll basically just we're having a discussion just like we normally do. And um, the first question would be. So Gog and Magog war is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and also in Revelation 20 uh, verses 7 through 10. Is is there one Gog and Magog war or is there two? And if so, what's the difference between the two wars? Um, I could start out with uh, with Ali first and then we could go from there. Okay, yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, this is uh, the way I look at it is that the Hebrew prophetic poetry is based on a system of pattern. A pattern, prophecies pattern, Chuck Messer used to say, meaning that um, the Greek mind looks for a linear fulfillment. Everything in scripture has only one single fulfillment, and you look for that. But the Hebrew mind that's behind the scriptures is more like a spiral, something that it speaks even to the setting of the life of the prophet that now begins a process of pattern and has an ultimate fulfillment right so with this the fact that you know gog exists in after the millennial kingdom and for those who believe like i do that there's going to be a literal millennial kingdom on the earth and that it exists 
the this enemy exists also before the second coming of the Lord, tells me, first of all, that there is a spiritual hand behind this war. It telegraphs that to me. And that this spiritual hand is going to exist now and is going to exist again at the after a thousand years. Um, there is an interesting passage in uh, Amos 7.1, especially if you read it in the Septuagint, which is the... Uh, you know, the Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament uh, done by these rabbis. It's got a very interesting story behind it, but it was a well-respected translation of scripture used, um, you know, was authoritative. Amos 7, 1 says, Thus has the Lord God showed me, and behold, a swarm of locusts coming from the east, and behold, one caterpillar king Gog. One cat, so it places Gog as the head of the locusts, uh, which you know may may tie to Revelation nine eleven and and all of the swarm that comes out of the. Now Proverbs thirty verse seven says the locusts have no king, yet they they go yet go they forth all of them by bands. So clearly, if the locusts have no king, yet Gog is the leader of a horde of locusts, the king of them. It says. Then that tells us, of course, that um, you know it's not talking about locusts; it's talking about spiritual things, and they do exist now and after a thousand years when the enemy, the adversary, is let let go of his bondage. You know, there's a chain; he's bound, and then he's let out again for one last, uh, you know, purging of the human race, and. So there we see the character of Gog, the spirit of Gog. So it's probably, you know, a spirit. You know, like, you know, we know the Shadim are spirits of the Nephilim that roam the earth. Um, and it exists now and then. Um, it it does seem to suggest a connection with the locusts. It does seem to telegraph Revelation 9-11. And I know we're going to dig deeper into all of this, but I'm just giving that overview since you're saying that. So the answer is short of it is, it's pointing to a spiritual force behind this war that exists now and, and later. Okay, and uh, next up, Ryan Peterson. Yeah, sure. So I definitely ascribe to the view that there are two wars, and I agree with Ali. I think he described it beautifully in terms of how the Hebrew mind works when it understands prophecy and time, right? And so, Ali, I, I use the term the scroll of time. You call it a spiral. I call it a scroll. That time to God is like a scroll where it's definitely not linear, right? It's the events are repeating and cycling, right? And God uses that in order to really prove that he is God, that he is Yahweh El Elyon. He says in Isaiah 46 that this is the, really, it's props that God declares the uh, the the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that must come to pass. And so this is how God really shows that he is above all principalities and powers. And when it comes to Ezekiel 38, I think what we're seeing in 39, I think, again, we're seeing this typology of two of more than one battle or war being described. And I actually think they're being described in reverse order. And I think that when we look at Ezekiel 38, we're seeing that description of that post-millennial battle. And, I, and I, like Ali, I believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ on earth. And at the end, we see, of course, in Revelation 20, Gog and Magog mentioned by name, that final battle on the holy city, on Jerusalem. 
And what we see in the conditions that we see described in Ezekiel 38, I think, really indicate prophetically that it's referring to that war. And the, the key thing, I think, is that it says that the prophet says that, you know, Jerusalem will be dwelling safely without walls. And that, that to me, that description that God is going to say to Ismael, go up against uh, the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely. That language prophetically, to me, puts it in the in the millennium. That is the time we see in other passages prophetically when Israel will be able to dwell safely, when Christ is ruling on earth, right? When there's peace on earth, right? We turn our, uh, you know, weapons are turned, our swords into plowshares, right? So we now we are now in that er, that that time, and I believe it's describing that battle. And then when you get to Ezekiel chapter thirty nine, it's talking about. An earlier battle, I think they're really separated by a thousand and seven years, really. And I think I think the the first battle of God Magog, which I think is described in Ezekiel chapter 39, is really kind of at the start of the Great Tribulation and may almost be perceived as Armageddon by the unbelieving world. Because it's out of the rubble and out of this out of this battles when the Antichrist will really emerge on the scene. And so that's, I think, the conditions being described. And I think what we see also in Ezekiel chapter 39, we can get to more detail on this, but the key thing is that God says, so you have the unwalled villages in this condition of Jerusalem dwelling in, in safety in Ezekiel chapter 38, where the condition in 30, chapter 39, God specifically says that he's doing this so that Israel will no longer profane his name. From this day on, now they'll know that I'm their God. So again, this wouldn't be at the end of the millennium. This is when Israel, the believing remnant, right? This is the, the entire Great Tribulation. The purpose of the Great Tribulation is to bring that believing remnant of Israel to a full understanding of who God is. That yes, He's God Yahweh, but also that His Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is Yeshua Hamashiach, the Messiah. And so God is declaring in 39 that in this victory. Over this being God, and Ali, like you said, I definitely agree that God is a spirit realm being, um, that God is going to use this to awaken Israel, to start bring that process of their reconciliation. So I think that's putting us at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, and 38 is telling us what's going to happen at the at the end, when Israel's already been reconciled, and now we're at the, literally, Satan's last strike. Okay, next up, Derek. Well, I agree with uh, with Ryan and with Ali that these are two separate battles. Ezekiel 38, 39 and uh, Revelation 20 are describing separate conflicts. I, I do think that 38 flows into 39 and that it is one conflict um, and that uh, culminates at the Battle of Armageddon and we can get into that. Um, interestingly, Amos chapter 7 in the Septuagint, the newer translation of the Septuagint prepared by the uh, uh, the, the, the translators at Faith Life, uh, the Lexham English Septuagint translates instead of Gog, it translates it as Agag, who was the uh, king of the Amalekites back in the days of uh, Saul, if I remember correctly. Um, and but but what it does show us, even the uh, even if it was an error by the translators of the Septuagint in the third century BC, is that. Uh, Amos chapter 7 is clearly an apocalyptic prophecy of the end times and that they connected Gog with the end times. So even if they couldn't make sense of whatever it was they were trying to translate, Gog, Agag, whatever, they used Gog because they saw it was an apocalyptic prophecy of the end. Gog is clearly the great end times enemy of God in Ezekiel. And so I think we can identify Gog as the spirit 
that we call Antichrist in the New Testament, the beast that emerges from the sea in Revelation chapter 13. At least that's how I see it. Um, I also think that um, there's been a tendency among end times Bible teachers to try to um, interpret Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the identities of Gog, Magog, and whether or not Rosh is an entity or should be translated in from the Hebrew word into the English word as head or chief, where it is, as it is everywhere else in the Old Testament, um, tend to look for a, too naturalistic of an explanation or an interpretation of Ezekiel 38 and uh, look for that literal fulfillment, which then leads to some confusion. How can Gog and Magog return at the end of the thousand years if they were destroyed in the lake of fire? at the end of Ezekiel 39, or in the middle of Ezekiel 39. But if you're dealing with supernatural entities rather than geopolitical entities or humans, then you really don't have a conflict as far as I see. So yeah, I do think we've got two separate conflicts here, and we need to keep in mind as we're analyzing this that we're dealing with a supernatural enemy, the Antichrist and his chief of staff, or Satan and his chief of staff, the Antichrist. And there's also that uh, mention in is 39 of the fatlings of Bashan, which yes. tends to be, you know, a code. Exactly, yes. Or the Nephilim. Yeah. That is correct. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so my, sure. my, my next question would have been, uh, who or what is Gog and Magog? And, and is it like a lot of people try to try to say it's a country, it's a tribe, it's a nation. I mean, who would Magog be? If you guys already kind of described Gog as being like a spiritual entity. Um, what about Magog? Um, we'll start out with uh, with you, Ali, and we'll just keep going. We'll go Ali, Ryan, and then Derek each time. Okay. Um, okay, so, you know, we're trying to look into the future, right? So there's a lot of conjecture. You know, we're having a conversation, and in, we, you, our thinking evolves as the Holy Spirit continues to teach us as we move deeper into these times. So th these are just working ideas. That's how I approach it. These are kind of working ideas, right? Uh, and there's there's mystery. So for me, um, there is something real being described, and it's interesting that it's right it's after right chapter. Sorry, oh, it's right after chapter thirty six, where it's the prophecy of the regathering of Israel to the land, which again has a pattern of fulfillment through history. I mean, Ezekiel himself was in exile when he wrote that, and then the Persians came and they went back to the land, and this pattern. I believe is fulfilled one more time in our in the 20th century with the establishment of Israel. So this war definitely is happening, never happened in the ancient history of Israel. It's happening, therefore, in the modern history of Israel, because we, we know the ancient history of Israel all the way to the destruction of the Second Temple. And we don't see this war, even though we see much conflict. And so um, it is it says in the latter years in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse eight, which is another code term for. The Acharit Hayamim, the end of days, which is what you know uh, uh, our time. Now the countries that are mentioned, there is a horde of people coming, right? There's definitely a list given. Uh, there's the Prince of Meshech and Tubal, and you know there's Persia, Kush, and Put. For me, um, as far as what could these be, if we were to bring it into the natural and say, okay, what do we know about Megog? By the way. The, gem, the gematria of Gog and Magog is 70, which is interesting because it ties into the 70, you know, nations. It's uh, all of them. It's all of them. Has that <laughs> right. feel? 
Um, now that yeah, so well, I want to come back to that idea of you know who all of them were not and all because there are many wars. But Hesiod, the father of Greek didactic poetry, identified Magog with the Scythians. Um, you know, southern Russia in the seventh century BC, contemporary of around Ezekiel's time. Herodotus, the father of history, used the term Scythians and Magogians interchangeably and wrote about the descendants extensively. And, you know, he lived in the in the fifth century uh, BC. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus identified Magog as Scythians of the far north in his antiquities. Um, the Latin father Jerome says that this word denotes Scythian nations, fierce, innumerable, who live beyond the Caucasus and Lake Maotis and near the Caspian Sea and spread out even onward to India. Um, some say that the name represents the Assyrian Matgugi, or the country of Gugu, the, the Giges of the Greeks, uh, Reverend Archibald Henry says, um, you know, uh, mentioned that. So where does this put it in modern terms? Basically, the northern Iranian plateau and the stands, this is kind of would be where they would they were living. And so, yes, they have migrated. You know, they were kind of nomadic. They migrated north. So is it possible to think of the Slavic people of the Russian? Yes, Anatolia, sure. Uh, there's different ways you can look at it, but no matter how I place these countries, they seem to come from that part of the world, right? Uh, I don't know if you want me to do all of them at once, like Gomer and everybody else, or just uh, stop with Magog. Um, the, as far as is everybody involved, as I said, I think there's a pattern here. I, I do think I've meditated on this a lot and came to the conclusion that I think that this is a separate war from Armageddon, but prophetically the pattern of Armageddon is already in this war. So these are two conflicts. Now, Sheba and Didan, so for me, the Yaphetites and the Hamites are really in the horde. The Semites seem to be on the side. And later, what we see, of course, is that when these uh, this army comes, brought by God, defeated by God, then Israel takes the weapons um, of this army and burns it for energy for seven years, if that's what literally I'm reading here. And then there's a burial of the dead on the Valley of Hamangog, and those uh, people who see bones have to go and get these other guys and say, look, we're going to put a marker here, um, come and bury the bones. Some say it might be radioactive. This doesn't sound like the Messianic kingdom to me, right? This doesn't sound like what would happen right after the Battle of Armageddon if the Lord is here establishing his millennial rule. We're not going to be burning weapons for seven years. We're not going to be burying dead people and putting markers, right? I think that him and his angel army they're going to have the resources to deal with this stuff quickly so i think that there's a pattern here that speaks of the battle of armageddon there's lots of terminology here that 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 is used again in the uh, battle of armageddon but for me the 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 fact that it focuses more on yaphetites and hamites and the fact that it describes this burning of the weaponry 
and the burying of the dead in this very detailed and specific way, it does point to our world still. You know, the, the this is what our world is gonna this looks like. We bury people this way, we burn weapons for energy. Um, so so it has echoes of Armageddon, like the 70, as I said, is the gematria. It has terminology that that points to the pattern of, of the final fulfillment of this attempt to derail the prophetic word of God by destroying Israel, because that's what this is really about. This is about derailing the prophetic word of God and making sure that scripture is broken, because the Lord says that he has, does nothing except that which he speaks through his servants, the prophets. And so this is an attack from the enemy to destroy Israel so that the prophecy can be fulfilled and the age of empire can continue. And so that pattern culminates in Armageddon, but I think this battle is a distinct one with Armageddon, Armageddon patterns. And I can speak into why why I think it's this thing more as we as we unfold the, the talk. All right, Ryan, you're up next. Sure. So uh, you know, I want to I want to uh, first of all, great job, Ali. And I, I definitely was uh, I definitely agree with uh that analysis for sure. But I, I want to talk about one more thing. Well, several other things about the identity of God that I think kind of tie into some of the early comments already. So there's an interesting passage in Ezekiel 38 where God says, and you know, and one thing I we find too is that the language here is the the way God is speaking through Ezekiel is very similar to how God speaks in other what I call esoteric passages like Isaiah 14, uh, Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel 30, when God is really saying a lot to this entities, which again I think I think indicates that we're talking about a spirit realm being a fallen angel. And in in, in verse 17 of Ezekiel 38, uh it, 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 God says, you know, God says, thus saith the Lord God, art thou, speaking of Gog, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them. And so God is saying, are you this one who my prophets have spoken of? And then Ali going back to the Septuagint, in the Septuagint, it says it directly. It's not a question. It's a direct statement. It says, thou art he concerning whom I spoke of in former times by the hands of my servants, the prophets of Israel. So it's saying very clearly that this is someone who is mentioned in multiple prophetic, in multiple books of the Bible, that Gog is mentioned in multiple books of the Bible. So how could that be, right? Where do we else, you know, where we see this name? And, I, and when I submit, and I think this is how it kind of ties into everything we're saying and this pattern, this cycle of repeating events, is that the that God of the the person the being ultimately is either a representation or indwelled? I believe by the spirit known as Apollyon, Abaddon, and the Assyrian in the Old Testament, and that he is going to be one of you know. I talk about these mystery kings because I believe you know when you look at Revelation seventeen and identifies the seven headed dragon and says that the as says the seven heads are seven kings. And John is giving this chronology where it says five are fallen, one is, meaning he's alive at that time, and one is to come. And the beast, the Antichrist, he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. And so this, you know, I kind of lay out this 
this lineage of rulers who I believe have been indwelled by this spirit of Apollyon. And I believe God in this lineage is the seventh. And he, and this is, and so he, and this is how God can say, yeah, many prophets have spoken about you because there have been, because he's, this spirit has been allowed to indwell different leaders, infamous leaders who have been enemies of Israel and enemies of God throughout history, culminating with the final indwelling of Antichrist. And so you think about Ali mentioned earlier the quote, the, the, the verse from Amos talking about the locust king. Well, of course, where do we see this? Again, in Revelation 9, when the abyss is open and these locusts come out, who I believe are the Genesis 6 fallen angels who are locked in chains, as we read in Jude 6 and 7, 2 Peter chapter 2, and it says, and they had a king over them. Right. We see a direct confirmation that here are the locusts and here's their king, who is Apollyon, Abaddon, who I think at that point is coming out for his final kind of go around as the Antichrist. But I think Gog is one, I believe, is the seventh in this succession. And that's how it kind of all ties in um into how he can he's appearing in the millennium he's appearing in the great tribulation he's appearing in armageddon because it's a spirit it's an angelic spirit that's indwelling these leaders and so i just wanted to touch on that because i think it's a really interesting statement that god makes when he says i had that you have been mentioned throughout my work and um and i quote some other scholars too uh from the 19th century and and some and even some from earlier who kind of arrived at that same identification that he is just a rep he's a one in this series of leaders ultimately culminating with the antichrist possessed by that spirit apollyon okay all right derek next up <laughs> valuable information out of everybody so far <laughs> yeah this is this is like a uh uh just a fascinating uh study resource for for people just a crash course on uh everything from Ezekiel to, uh, you know, Revelation and the, and the Battle of Armageddon. Um, I, I agree with you about 90% of that, Ryan. The only place where we would disagree is uh, I think the spirit of Antichrist is Leviathan, chaos, because the uh, seven-headed yes. beast mm -hmm. that emerges from the sea is a representation the same way that the chaos dragon of ancient Mesopotamia was depicted. Mm -hmm. And um, there are scholars who have concluded that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, who speaks blasphemous things, is uh, connected to Typhon, the chaos monster of Greek cosmology. And uh, so I, I go in that direction, but I'm not, that's not a hill I'm willing to die on. So uh, I know that we're, we're kind of in a minority in saying, yeah, we, we think Leviathan is the, uh, is the Antichrist, because then there's some question about, okay, well, how does he come back then? How does God come back um, at the end if he's already in the lake of fire in, in Revelation 19? It's like, uh, I don't know. So we'll, we'll, we'll work in progress, as Ali put it. Um, I, I do think that all of the people, all of the people groups named in the Northern Coalition in, in Ezekiel 38, uh, Meshach, Tubal, Magog, Gomer, and Beth Tagarma, in Ezekiel's day could be very positively identified throughout archaeology and located in what is now Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, uh, even Magog which uh, I know that there are others who believed that uh, even, you know, going back to Josephus and before that uh, connected them to the Scythians, who did make fairly regular incursions south of the Caucasus Mountains, but their main dwelling place, their, their home country was, was north of the Caucasus, the steppes of, uh, uh, of uh, that, that region of what is now southern Russia. 
But when we go back to Genesis chapter 10, we find all five of these, these nations mentioned as sons of Japheth. So yes, these are the Japhethites there. Uh, Genesis 10 verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, the Medes, Yevon, the Ionians, the Greeks, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. And Tiras were probably the uh, Tyrrhenians or the Etruscans um, who migrated from Western Turkey, the Trojans, in other words, who wound up on the Western coast of, uh, of Italy. And the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rifoth, and Togarma. So there you've got within two generations of Japheth, all five in this Northern coalition. And then when we uh, look at their rallying point in Ezekiel 38, verse 18, on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, Nope, I want to back up to uh, verse 14. Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you. And this is one reason that uh, some will identify Gog or Magog as Russia, because when you drew, look at a map and you draw a line north from Jerusalem, Russia is as uttermost north as you can get. Uh, the phrase in Hebrew, however, is Yarkate Tsefon, and that name, Tsefon, just happens to be the name of the mountain that was sacred to Baal, or Baal for you scholars out there, just so you know that we know how to pronounce it. Um, this is Jebel al-Akra in Turkey today. It's on the Mediterranean coast near the ancient city of Antioch, very close to the Syrian border. This was sacred, not just for the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Canaanites, you know, for the, the mountain of Baal. It was also uh, the, the sacred mountain of the storm god for the Hurrians and Hittites. And it was believed by the Greeks to be where Zeus defeated the chaos monster Typhon, who got his name from that mountain, Zephon. This was so important that the Hebrew word for north comes from that mountain, because in all the related Semitic languages in the ancient world, the word for north was Simal, meaning left. Because when you're staring at the eastern sun, as it rises, left means north, south, yamin is right. But in Hebrew, it's tefan, because that's the direction of Baal's mountain. So I think what we've got here is a cosmic north rather than a geographic north that Ezekiel is pointing to. And that, again, reinforces the idea that Gog and all of these forces that are coming against Israel are supernatural. And Ali, that that's brilliant. I had never heard before that the gematria of Gog and Magog is 70, because I think that's what Ezekiel is trying to communicate here. We look at Cush and Persia and, and Put, and we can identify those, you know, Persia, Iran. Okay, we can see them as an existential threat to, uh, to Israel, but Put, um, that's Libya. That's not even a functioning state at this point. And Cush, what is, what is that? That's Sudan, that's uh, Ethiopia. A again, not really a threat to Israel, but what they were in Ezekiel's day, were the nations that were as far away as any of his readers would have heard from uh, where they were and from Israel. And if you look at a map and you look at Yarkate Tsefan, Mount Tsefan, the mountain of Baal coming from the north, you have Persia coming from the east, you've got Put coming from the west, and Cush coming from the south. In other words, the same thing that we see in Revelation 20 with the second war of Gog and Magog, the four corners of the world. In other words, 70, all of them, the entire world is coming to do battle against Israel. And that's what Ezekiel is talking about here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. One of the reasons I believe that this culminates with Armageddon. Awesome. Yeah. I prayed before to God, like, God, I, I want more, you know, like I want more out of uh, 
the Bible and I want more. And, and honestly, I feel like when I do these round tables, God is like blessing me with so much more to, to, you know, information. It's such, such a blessing. Um, okay. So, okay. So where, and I'm, I'm asking some of these are going to be, uh, like, where does the battles take place? Like, uh, I, I know the answer to these questions, but just so for the readers that don't know the Bible yet, uh, where, where does the, the where do the Gaga mega wars take place? Like geographically, Ali. Um, okay, so they well they take place on this mountain here. All the multitude, then they will call it the Valley of Hamongog. It says the mountains of Israel. Uh, now it has that feeling of you know he mentioned Mount Zephon. It has that feeling of Mount Hermon, like especially for they're coming from the north. Um, so let's just uh, uh, before we continue, I wanted to pause on this idea that Derek brought about Armageddon and the, and this battle and the idea of the collective. So we have Psalm chapter two that talks about the kings of the earth gathering against um, the God and his anointed, the Messiah. And when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, it talks about in the commentary on Psalm 2, it says that there was the king of the king of the nations, you know, the because they went, you know, the Dead Sea Scroll guys, they went, wait a second, if all these uh, kings are gathering against God and his anointed, they must have a leader. So there's a king of the king of the nations, right? They came to a conclusion. You have prophecy of uh, the nations being invited in the Valley of Judgment in the Scroll of Joel. Um, you have Zechariah chapter 14, which is you know, my favorite uh, camera lens into the final moment of this age of history. Uh, it's so rich with detailed information. You know, the Lord lands on the Mount of Olives. Then you, the survivors come to worship year after year. Um, it deals with a lot of heretical thoughts that are out there. And of course, you have the book of Revelation, um, chapter 19, you know, the uh, Lord comes, the heavenly host. So these, there's definitely a war from Psalms to Zechariah to Joel uh, to Revelation. There is a final spiritual conflict that we can, in our Christian language, maybe just summarize as the War of Armageddon, right? We can just call it that. Great. Yet there are other wars mentioned in the prophetic writings uh, that may apply to the modern age. You know, uh, I think it's Psalm 83, is it? Right. So the, there are all these countries that come and there has been many wars. There was a war of independence in 1948. There was, uh, you know, this 1967 war that that was very important because Jerusalem became part of the Commonwealth of Jewish people. It was a prophetic war. It happened on the Jubilee, the 50th year of 1917, when the Balfour Declaration was issued. And Jubilee is the year where inheritance is returned to people. Um, and there was, yes, there was Yom Kippur War in the early 70s. But, you know, so there has been these Arab-speaking Islamic nations that have come against Israel. For me, this war... Um, in the system of pattern, prophecies pattern, is perhaps speaking of a non-Arab Islamic war. You know, so you've got, um, who's in North Africa? Well, you have the Muslim Brotherhood. You have to kind of see it more in not the concept of modern nation states, which is a 19th century concept. The Bible gives us tribes that we follow into the modern age. And um, it talks about groups of people. The, the whole country doesn't have to go to war, right? There can be groups of people. So right now there is this 
um, Islamic army under Iran's um, government that is being uh, funded by Iran, uh, by, the, by the Islamic Republic, I should say. And Sunnis and Shias are coming together, right? Especially lately, uh, there is this uh, Soleimani's just general that uh, President Trump uh, uh, killed. He put together this uh, strategy called United Front, which means uh, Shia and Sunnis, let's put our differences away and form a United Front against Israel. Because the idea is that, you know, when the rightly guided one comes, the Mahdi, he will decide which is the right sect of Islam. So let's just for now put that difference away and go for it. So there is the, there is the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood and other groups in North Africa. Um, I, I'm told in Ethiopia, in, in many of the mosques, they tell you that if you don't, if you're not militant against Israel, you're not a real Muslim. So there, there's this. Um, when I look into Turkey, of course, you know, Erdogan, um, he's running out of steam in some ways, but, but he does represent the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, when I look at Russia, I see that 20% of the population is Islamic. When the Charlie Hebdo stuff happened, um, there was a huge uprising in Chechnya on behalf of the terrorists. Uh, I think about close to a million people came out. It was huge. I was surprised. I had no idea that. And, and the Chechens, you know, they're like this private army of Putin's. So there's an Islamic front there. The Taliban that have taken over Afghanistan, they are different from the Taliban that used to be there. They're more Muslim Brotherhood. The old Taliban was Salafi. They're connected to Saudi Arabia. The new Taliban has an office in Doha, Qatar, and is connected to a much larger, wealthier, better organized organization. Oh. And this has allowed um, uh, militant groups from Tajikistan and Uzbekistan to come in and set up madrasas in Afghanistan where they're teaching this what they teach is how to overthrow governments because they just establish caliphates so we can you know we're looking through a veil in a way right we're trying to understand we don't want to put too much of our ideas on here but i think that there is a war brewing um this is the echoes of armageddon right there and this war coming against israel from these nations how is it going to happen what's the trigger i don't know but there is this um, these players, let's say, for instance, Persia, which is one of the main players. There is a revolution brewing inside of Iran. There is a massive Christian revival, the largest in the whole Middle East happening. There is a new Iran pushing against the Islamic Republic. If these guys are going to play the part in this war at this time, they've got to kind of, you know, it has, it's got to happen somehow in the 20s. Uh, they're going to be 50 years of governance by 19 by 2029. Uh, so maybe the Lord will return the country to the people of Iran from this Islamic rulership before that year of Jubilee. Um, this war with Ukraine is very interesting. It has isolated Russia. And in that isolation, Putin already a long time ago replaced Eastern Europe as a base with the Islamic world. And he got involved in the nuclear program in Iran because it was a local issue that gave him global importance. And, you know, he came and parked his jets in Latakia in Syria. He has a warm water port in Nablus. Um, I'm not saying that he's going to declare war against Israel and go, but it's interesting that just two days before the invasion of Ukraine, the ambassador of Russia in the United Nations 
said, you know what, we no longer accept that Jerusalem is the sole capital of the Jewish people, and we also think that Israel should withdraw from the Golan Heights. It's an article in Jerusalem Post you can Google and read, and it's like, where did that come from? And with hindsight, they're giving a warning, look, be on our side as this conflict develops, or else we'll lose our levers you know, against you. But it's interesting because there's a spiritual, anti-Semitism has a spiritual origin, right? So there's, sometimes it reveals something that's in the spirit and mind, through, to, through what seems like natural political maneuvers, right? So I don't know how the, exactly all the pieces are not there, but I think that we could see such an incredible war coming. All this non-Arabic Islamic speaking nations, the, the Islamic Republic and its Sunni partners, the United Front of Soleimani. When you look at the Soviet Union, they f gave the weapons to the enemies of Israel in the 1967 war, in the, in the Yom Kippur war, they they gave the they are the industrial patron. They are the eagle of the east. They are the Rome of the east, right? And I can see why they would think, well, you know, if we can replace the Judeo-Christian world with an Islamic Russian world, you know, we switch the world order in one chess move, right? So who knows what's going on in their minds? But I'm not, I don't think Putin's going to get up and go to war against Israel. It doesn't make sense. But behind the curtains, this the spirit. So this, there might be something here brewing that is worth paying attention to. Now, if these guys actually do come up against Israel and they're defeated on the mountains because the Lord puts a hook, he brings them and he defeats them. The Lord brings them and defeats them, which is a good news because as, this is going to be horrific. So it's good for us to go and say, don't worry, guys, the Lord has this whole thing in his hands. So it's got the whole world in his hands and he's got this in his hands. So if these guys come and they get defeated, they get defeated, what would be the consequences of this defeat? First of all, the Islamic hordes, um, they're religious people. They don't, um, they're not, not crazy, right? They're just deceived. They see this and they go, wow, God was with Israel. So the Lord is glorified in their sight. They have a change of heart and mind. And I have some stories I can tell later about that. Um, so there would be a glorification of God in the Middle East. The Christian movement that's already among the Muslims growing very fast. Iran is the leading part of it. It's also in the Arab world would expand. I think it would kind of bring a time of reprieve. You know, when you look at the history of Islam, only that disturbed it. One was in the ninth century, the, the writings of Plato and Aristotle were translated into Arabic, which created a huge, huge division in the Islamic world. Then in the 18th century, Napoleon soldiers in Egypt, they introduced the, the ideas of the French Republic to the Muslim world, which led to the secularism uh, of Nasser and the democracies. And the third thing is Israel's presence. And so this may be and, you know, something they can't overcome. They can't overcome Israel. So when they come against it, they're broken. And this changes, finally, let's say the Islamic Republic falls in Iran, it changes the landscape of the politics of the region. And now we can see kind of the 10 kings, the the the, the final, you know, the, the, from this war on one hand, there's reprieve, but there's geopolitical changes that happen in the region that allow some of these Islamic players to go fall down and governments rise that are more part of the world order where the, the eagles of the East and the West can tap into them. You know, like the parliament of Iran is a pyramid with 33 windows. I don't know where they got that idea from, right? Today, <laughs> this parliament right now, right? So so the, so there's already maybe hands, you know, behind it. It's like these guys are like, let's, 
let's let's have them do this if they win great if they lose out of the ashes a new world order rises and it's interesting this idea of templates because you look at the 1930s um it, we had the great depressions I mean, right now we might be on the verge of an economic crisis i don't know where, where all this interest rate inflation is going to take us and if this war happens sometime in the 20s then definitely the 2030s might be a time of economic depression and that was the time where strong leaders came to power in Europe, like Hitler, Mussolini, Franco. People look for strong leadership. So the 2030s could be a time where people look for strong leadership, and it's a fertile soil for the Ten Kings, and out of them, the Little Horn, like Hitler, you know, is a and his seven-year war, you know, against the Jewish people. Like there is the template, as though the 2030s might be like the 1930s. So. So I see, first of all, a time of reprieve for the people of the region, a glorification of God as a result of this defeat, and a changing of the world order that sets up the rise of the Ten Kings and prepares us for the Battle of Armageddon sometime later, you know, in maybe in the 40s. I don't know. Like, who knows? I don't, so I, the people have to have a break. They can't just have a war like this and then have Armageddon. And it's like, ah, right? You know, there has to be like these are birth pangs, and birth pangs come in a rhythm, right? So, so I see patterns of that global war of all nations in this prophecy. Yet I see distinct specifications that identify it as a distinct war that has has echoes of the Armageddon, and that's how. Looking at modern day events, that's how I see. I think this may be what's on the horizon, even perhaps in the 2020s. And I have all kinds of ideas why I think that is. And then that might set up the rise of the world order that leads to Armageddon. Um, and, you know, that's just some, some ideas that I wanted to share with you, Ryan. Okay. Thank you. Ryan, next up. So uh, the question was, where, where do these battles take place? Like, where do these wars take place? Yeah. So, yeah. So again, so, yeah. So I, I, of course, agree that this is talking about Israel. So again, you know, in, in both battles, right, the final after post millennium is clearly at Jerusalem. And then I believe the, the first battle, right, when we see, um, you know, the description there, it says that, God, you know, the easy because thou shall come, come up against my people of Israel. So this is about the land of Israel for sure. And, you know, in terms of you know, the war and how this is being set up, the timing. I think Ali, you know, I think, you know, that, you know, in terms of what's taking place on the geopolitical front, I think it is all indications of, of what's going, you know, we're seeing templates of how these things could be set into order. But, you know, again, I I, I always go back to that, even the, 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 the national leaders of these nations are being led by the spirit realm. Right. You know, and we see we see a clear example of this in Revelation 16, where when it's time for Armageddon, you have the, the satanic trinity, the devil, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. They have demons come out of their mouths and they go and recruit. So it's the spirits are leading and, you know, really pulling the strings of all the political machinations and scheming against Israel and against God's plan um, that's taking place in, in, in the human realm. And so what I wanted to point out also is, is something about the timing of this, you know, and of the first battle and something interesting uh, that I think, again, because I, I think the first battle 
And, you know, Ali made an interesting point about how what will come out of the, you know, the ashes of the war, how a new world order can arise out of it. And I think, you know, I think that the first battle of Gog Magog, which will be a first attempt to strike Israel with this coalition, I think could be perceived and used as a deception by the Antichrist to to help jumpstart his career as the defender of Israel, as the savior yep. of Israel, because I believe he's definitely going to be uh, uh, Israeli or claim to be of the line of David, right? Ezekiel, yep. Ezekiel himself, chapter 21, calls him uh, the wicked prince of Israel, whose time shall come when iniquity is at an end. So it's calling him a prince of Israel. And you know, there's interesting, there's some interesting, I think, details in Ezekiel about the timing in chapter 38. The end of when you get to verses 21 to 23, you see these two guys, and this is so personal. God is personally and supernaturally intervening. There's a lot of divine supernatural warfare taking place. And God says that I'll call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. So this is again. God causing, you know, uh, fitting the, the enemy as we see in Joshua or in the war with Jehoshaphat where everyone's, the enemy's fighting against each other. And he says, and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And God says, it's going to rain great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And so, and says, thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So again, this idea that God is establishing and setting himself, he's putting the world on notice, which I believe that's the beginning of the great tribulation. God's letting the world know, right? We see that in Revelation 6, where it says the great men, the mighty men, they say, hide us from him who sits on the throne. It's like all oh, the mighty, the, the Illuminati, the elites, they know this is God. God is now stepping into the arena. And, um, and Israel's waking up as well. But I think Israel's reconciliation is a process through the seven years and so if you look I, I, and i put the timing of the rapture at the sixth seal i believe everything the great tribulation everything i'm a pre-tribulation believer but i think everything starts at the sixth seal and if you think about that you know the seventh seal of course is the silence in the space of, in the heaven for the space of about a half an hour and then you get to the first trumpet and you have, you know, we're seeing it's just, it's we're seeing the scene in heaven of the mighty angel, who I believe is Jesus, at you know, at the altar with the incense, acting as high priest in the tabernacle, the temple in heaven. And uh it says when the first trumpet sounds, it says they're followed, hail and fire mingled with blood. And again, this is the only time you see this judgment. You see this mighty angel again, who I believe is God. Throwing the center down to earth. So I believe the, I believe this is the actual judgment of the first Gog-Magog coalition attack. And you see, because this is the only time you see that very unique combination of fire, brimstone, and blood. And being cast to earth and destroying, uh, I believe, Gog-Magog, the first invasion of Gog-Magog. And so... Again, going back to Ali, what Ali was saying about out of the ashes, this new order, I think in this, you know, if you think about this, again, from the, the perspective of this, the, the world at large, right, because we're non-believers and believers alike. From the non-believing perspective, now you have these supernatural judgments. It's like, well, wait a second, what's really happening? And then out of this, you have this leader emerge who 
is uh, leading Israel, who is now starting this revival, who has supernatural powers, and he he appears and he's presenting himself as the Messiah. And I think I, I think this that this first war could really be seen as a false Armageddon. And out of this, it sets the stage for the Antichrist to do the things we see in the book of Daniel. It says he will restart the sacrifice and oblation for the first three and a half years. This revival of saying, yeah, I am pro-Israel. Bring back the, the third temple, the rebuilt temple. Start the sacrifice. And so I think it's going to be a, a launch pad of the deception of the Antichrist to try and lure Israel, obviously, away from worshiping their true Messiah, Jesus. Awesome. Amazing information. And Derek, go ahead if you want to add to that. Uh, yeah, actually, and that's exactly what I'm going to do is uh, add to that, because I think that uh, in, at the end of Daniel chapter 11, you get uh, an outline of how this might actually play out. Um, and this may refer back to a, a Psalm 83 prophecy. If Bell Salas wrote the book on that is uh, correct, we could see this playing out according to um, Daniel 11, beginning at verse 36 and going through the end of the chapter, it reads sort of like the wars of Antichrist. The king shall do as he wills. Uh, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and speak astonishing things against the god of gods. And this is uh, very similar to the blasphemous names on the uh, seven heads of the, uh, the Antichrist who emerges from the sea in Revelation 13. Very much like the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and the blasphemous things that it speaks, uh, which I remind you is like the chaos monster Typhon. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see how this all plays out. But um, from verse 40 onward, he and I identify the king of the north in Daniel 11 as the um, as the Antichrist figure here. Uh, and he goes to war with the king of the south and the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. And he basically defeats all of Israel's near neighbors, Edom and Moab. And the main part of the Ammonites escape from his hand. But uh, he uh, becomes ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, all the precious things of Egypt. The Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. So there's Cush and Put from this coalition. Uh, but uh, And then he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. So he sets up his headquarters in Israel. So I think when we get somebody like this, as you suggested, Ryan, a dynamic political or military leader or both, uh, you know, imagine, say, Moshe Dayan and... Um, uh, and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu all rolled into one times 10. Um, I think there are rabbis in Israel who would welcome this person as the Messiah. And they would see that as the war of Gog and Magog, because for Jewish believers, of course, the war of Gog and Magog is the big final battle between God and the forces of darkness, because they don't have the book of Revelation. Uh, there are rabbis that have been claiming that the uh, civil war in Israel, or in Syria, rather, that began in 2011, was the War of Gog and Magog. And they were looking for Messiah to arrive soon. In fact, uh, some of the most prominent Haredim, or ultra-Orthodox rabbis, like uh, Rabbi uh, Kayim Kanievsky, who just passed away a few years ago at the age of, uh, I think, 97, um, he had never, until his last few years, few years of life, been known to make pronouncements that Messiah, Messiah's arrival was imminent. Um, but in the last few years of his life, he was openly telling people, uh, Jews, to make Aliyah. If you're in Israel, don't leave because Messiah is here. He just hasn't revealed himself yet. And, and so I think they were looking for, that. they are looking for, or at least a small subset of Jewish religious leaders are looking for the Messiah right now. And they would be perhaps vulnerable to a deception 
so ingenious that it would fool even the elect if it were possible, in Jesus' words. So yes, I think there will be a conflict that will be presented as a false Gog-Magog conflict, or a false Armageddon, if you will. And Israel will be saved, apparently miraculously, and I think this leader, as you suggest, Ryan, will present himself to the world as a Jew, and will be welcomed for a time until the Jews see through his deception, because he will not be able to stop himself from speaking blasphemous things against the Creator. And then Jews will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn. Um, I think the wars will take place when it ultimately comes for real, the actual Gog-Magog conflict. It's clear in Ezekiel that it will take place on the mountains of Israel. It'll be in Israel. In fact, Ezekiel 39 gets more specific in verse 11. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for their Gog and all his multitude will be buried. And this, I think, identifies it as that area between Jericho and Mount Nebo, because um, in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses is, is at the end of his life, he is told by God to climb this mountain of Avarim, that's A-B-A-R-I-M. That is the word that in Ezekiel is translated as travelers, and lo and behold, there's an entrance for travelers in the dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible, because travelers is the word that was used by the Canaanites, the Amorite neighbors of Israel, for the spirits of the Rephaim. The demonic spirits of the Rephaim were literally called travelers in texts that summoned the travelers, summoned the Rephaim to a ritual meal at the threshing floor of El, or the, the tabernacle of El, which was the summit of Mount Hermon, which is where the Watchers' Rebellion back in Genesis 6 took place. A scholar by the name of Edward Lipinski, who is a very well-respected ancient Near Eastern scholar, said, you, the best way to think about Mount Hermon is like the Canaanite Mount Olympus, is where the gods met. It was the, the tabernacle, the threshing floor of El. It's where he held court with Baal and Asherah and Astarte and all of the other Canaanite gods, the summit of Mount Hermon. And um, this is where these travelers, these Rephaim spirits were summoned, according to these uh, Canaanite texts that were from about 1200 BC. So 1200 years before Jesus walked the earth, the Canaanite neighbors were venerating these travelers, the Rephaim, who were known to the Greeks as the heroes. There's a scholar named Amar Anus, by the way, who showed etymologically, linguistically, that the words the Greeks used for their demigod heroes of the Golden Age the Golden derive Age. from Semitic and the Semitic root word behind Rephaim. So, I mean, we can show etymologically, it's not just they're kind of alike, so they must be related. No, we can show that they come from the same linguistic words. The Greeks knew who the Rephaim were. It was Heracles and Perseus and those guys. They were the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. And that, according to Ezekiel, is who's coming back. What does it mean to block the travelers? It doesn't mean there'll be so many dead bodies on the king's highway that they won't be able to get to, uh, you know, go to Amman to go shopping in Jordan. Um, it means that they will not be resurrected. And that, I think, was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 26, beginning at verse 13. O Lord, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance which was important because in these rituals where you had to venerate the spirits of the Nephilim, these demonic spirits, and the spirits of your ancestors who were also just demons, you had to summon them 
by calling their names once a month. Every month, you had to say their names and then feed the little teraphim statues representing your dead ancestors and pour out a drink offering. That's what that means. Your name alone we bring to remembrance. These others, they're dead, and they're going to stay dead. And that's why Isaiah wrote, they are dead, they will not live. They are Rephaim, they will not arise. Isaiah in chapter 26 is prophesying resurrection. You see that in verse 19. But here, Ezekiel's saying that will be buried in the valley of the travelers, the valley below the mountain of the Avarim, the mountain of the travelers, where Moses got his only look at the Holy Land. And it will block the travelers. In other words, when that final trump sounds and we are raised up into incorruptible bodies, the travelers, the Rephaim, the demonic spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood, they're still dead. Amen. Amazing, amazing info. Yeah. So yeah, amen. And, I, and I got to jump in. That that go was ahead, just that, that was fire. But <laughs> I got to add too. Also in and also Derek in Isaiah twenty six, it also then gets into the resurrection of the believers. Yes, it does. So you're, you're right on. So, 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 so I think you're spot on. They're not going to be resurrected, but we, the believers will rise from the, you know, our bodies, like like Christ, will come from the dust. So What's what's really cool, yeah, Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies yes. shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light. But then that last sentence there is translated badly. It says, the earth will give birth to the Rephaim. And that seems to contradict verses 13 and 14 above. But in the Septuagint, it's it's translated properly. Uh, your due, uh, the due from you is a remedy for them, those who are in the dust and being raised up. But the land of the impious or the land of the ungodly will fall. And a scholar named Brooke W.A. Pearson analyzed that and said this being translated in the third century BC by Jewish scholars who were surrounded by Greeks. I mean, these were in Alexandria, the Greek king of Egypt at that point wanted their you know, wanted their, their holy uh, books translated into Greek so that his citizens could read them. They knew who the titans were of Greek religion and the land of the impious, considering that they're talking about the Rephaim. And they knew the Rephaim were the children of these gods who were fallen angels. Uh, they knew that these were the heroes of the Greek religion. So when they're talking about the land of the Absolutely. impious, they're talking about the land of the Rephaim or Tartarus, which is where Abaddon, Apollyon, and all of, you know, Shemiyaza, and all of the fallen sons of God from Genesis 6, according to Peter and Jude, are currently in chains in gloomy darkness. How oh, amazing. So, yeah. Interesting. All right. So, we, so, um, so next to what I would ask is, um, where does the United States fit in all this? You know, like, you know, we always see the United States backing Israel. Do you think they maybe backstab Israel and that, you know, they end up, you know, on the other side of this, where do you guys place the United States in the Gog and Magog wars? Uh, Ali, go ahead. Yes, that, that's a difficult question. So just one thing before I launch into that, just to uh, finish the conversation that the gentleman had, the, um, uh, the consequence of the war as far as the Antichrist is concerned, it may also tie into Isaiah 28 and the covenant with Shoal, the covenant with, with hell with that death, Israel yeah. makes. Because if imagine if a war like this happens, the whole world's going to be like, we need peace. This has got to stop, right? So, you know, the jihadis are defeated. There's spiritual awakening in the Middle East. Israel has their, because the resurrection that Ezekiel 37 talks about, is in stages. There's bones, there's flesh, there's breath, 
So Israel is waking up in stages. And so this may be one of the stages of the awakening of Israel. And so the Israel, God is glorified in the eyes of Israel, in the eyes of the enemies. Uh, the world order changes and sets up things for what's coming. And the Antichrist can come on the scene as the peacemaker and say, yes, we need peace. And this covenant may take place. And I don't see these things happening like, like in 24 hours. And like I see like changes happening, new leaders coming up, you know, people in the West reorganizing this conversation starting. And of course, the Temple Mount would be in any final negotiation right as part of the conversation because the the book of revelation does seem to suggest that a piece of the temple mount is given to the gentiles is cut out and so the muslims may get a piece of it and the jewish people may get a piece of it there's a, a person in the Knesset that recently so that might be another consequence of this battle uh, isaiah 28 therefore hear the word of adonai you scoffers who rule this people who are in jerusalem so it speaks specifically the rulership of jerusalem because you have said, we cut a covenant with death. We made a pact with Shaul. So when the overflowing scourge passes through, it won't come for us. For we have made lies our refuge and hid ourselves in falsehood. So even though they think that they're making a deal, uh, a final solution of peace with their enemies, um, but their covenant is not blessed by God. This is not how God sees it, because he, in fact, said, don't make any covenants. Uh, with the spiritual forces that are behind the nations, because they're not just nations, even though the secular Jewish mind may not see it that way, they're spiritual forces, and Israel is entering into, into covenant with them. Um, like Satan, you know, offers Israel uh, to, to the Lord, but he it offers the empires to the Lord uh, to have with Israel, and he refuses it. Uh, and of course, God says that, you know, you should put your trust in the uh, cornerstone uh, the firm foundation which is you know the messiah so that's another consequence that we may see coming out of this war the rise of uh, this covenant which itself is very important prophetically because the world will cry out for peace as far as where is the united states in such a war as this that's a great question um so basically i look for patterns of previous wars where was the united states in 1967. Where was the United States in the Yom Kippur War of 1971? Uh, where was the United States? It really wasn't, right? There, um, Golda Meir uh, was able to convince Nixon to send some weapons uh, during the 1967 war. There's weapons that arrived, fully the bullets and everything loaded. And um, that's because of something that happened to Nixon when he was a child. His mother reading the Bible over him as a child. A memory came to, to him, actually, when Goldemeyer asked for, for aid. But I don't think America would get involved with a regional war. That's why I see that if even if Russia is involved in this, I don't know, it would be like the pattern that's been set. They militarily give the weapons, but they don't politically get involved. Because, yes, if Russia actually got off and attacked it, Israel to expand its influence, then yes, America, in in the way that the world's powers are laid out, would have to counter that uh, to protect its its power base. Um, but so that's why I don't think that this this may not have those. That's the Armageddon war. That is the war of Armageddon that will have you know the Amer the United States will be a part of Armageddon. But I don't think in this war the pattern so far has been. 
that the uh, great powers watch from behind and support from behind. So I think this is going to be the same. Um, uh, Chuck Missler used to suggest that the people that live securely in the aisles that are suddenly hit by the enemy are in fact, you know, America. I'm not sure about that. I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't think so, to be honest. Uh, but it's possible. Um, so I see this more as the actual players of this battle to be perhaps um, still regional, uh, non-Arabic Islamic nations supported by industrial patrons. Um, and so I see America in the in the, kind of in the back. And last point, with America, it also depends who's in power. The Democrats, the Obama administration and the Biden administration that continues the Obama doctrine of foreign policy when it comes to the Middle East does have an anti-Semitic vein in it. That's why um, the Gaza war where the Islamic Republic, you know, okayed the Hamas to throw 6,000 rockets because they pay for it happened after Biden won the presidency. It didn't happen under Trump. Uh, there is this feeling that somehow, you know, the progressive Democrats, um, they they tend to be more in line with Islamic militancy when it comes to their foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel. They share a common bond of this anti-Semitic, anti-Christ, you know, spirit uh, for different ends, right? They have different visions of the future. So it also depends who's in power when this war happens in the United States. Will it be a pro-Israel government uh, or will it be one that's more gives the cold shoulder to Israel? Oh, something happened. Did I pin myself? Yep, I did. Let me remove that. Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. Okay, Ryan, next up. Where do you think America fits in the end times or in into these wars? Yeah, I think Ali made an interesting observation that America is kind of not... In, hasn't been involved in past wars. And and I think that, you know, uh, I, I think that will repeat, right? And, and you know, it it's, we kind of, we're kind of going back to full circle to, to what was said in the beginning that this is, you know, ultimately this is the world against God's nation, right? Which is kind of how it was all set up in the beginning. You know, when you go back to the ideas of the divine council and God dividing the nations, you know, among the fallen angels and keeping Israel, you know, but his nation, his land for himself. That's really what the battle comes, the geography of the battle is Israel versus the world. And so I think ultimately that means all nations um, that are outside of Israel are going to come up against, against, uh, against Israel uh, in the end time. So I don't, I don't see America really playing a big role. And, and if you think about it too, if you think about it too, again, there's going to be what, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying in, in terms of there's going to be this big kind of stage set for this deception and, and that people are going to be, I think, probably in the, in the initial phase supporting Israel, right? And this kind of goes to the idea of Revelation 17 and 18 and Mystery Babylon. And I think that when you see, I think you see this, you know, the description of all the goods and the commerce that's taking place in Mystery of Babylon, which I believe is end times Israel, Israel in the Great Tribulation, the goods, the scarlet, the gold, silver, ivory, cinnamon, 
Oh, you know, thighing wood, all these things are specific to the temple construction, the tabernacle, all the things that are required for temple ritual, which again, I believe we're going to see this revival of mosaic, Levitical, sacrifice and oblation in the third temple in the first three and a half years of Antichrist. So I think the world will probably, with good intention, think, hey, Israel's back. The temple's here. We want to support because it, it says there's massive amounts of commerce coming in. And I, and I tie that all back to the temple, right? That this is because the temple has actually been restored and is, is doing daily sacrifice and oblation. So I, so I think America might be in that role, unfortunately, in a deceived role. And in one way, it's good, right? Because it is that first stage, right? It is the bones and the flesh getting on the bones of Israel that they are acknowledging Yahweh and re and reinstituting re this, but it's being ultimately led by the false Messiah, right? This is still a part of the grand deception uh of of antichrist so um so yeah so that's kind of where i i kind of place uh america and derek uh next up derek i think you might be muted <laughs> yep. and since i'm using my ipad i gotta reach up here so if, if i it's look okay. like i'm poking you in the eye it's, it's, it's okay. just, um i I really don't have a whole lot to add here because I, I think we really have to dig really hard and, and try to read into the Bible to try to find the United States in there. And that's kind of an Amerocentric view, which a lot of us have when it comes to end times prophecy anyway. Oh, you know, we're not in the tribulation yet. Well, yeah, I think the church in China might argue that or the church in the Middle East uh, where, you know, Coptic Christians have been tribulated for about 1400 years. So uh, we have to be careful as Americans not to try too hard to see, oh, young lions, that must be us. Or the, the eagle that uh, carries, uh, or, you know, the, the wings of an eagle that carry the woman out into the, no, I, I don't know. There are a lot of countries that are not specifically mentioned in end times prophecy. I don't see China specifically in end times prophecy either. And China is a heck of a lot bigger than the United States in terms of people. But uh, um the, the kings of the east, by the way, that uh, are mentioned in the book of Revelation, I take as the ten kings, similar to the ten kings of Revelation, I take them as supernatural beings. But anyway, the um, yeah, I, I just don't see anything obvious other than what I said earlier about the, uh, the opponents of Israel in Ezekiel 38 coming from all four corners of the world. I, I think the whole world is coming to fight against God at Jerusalem. And so the United States will be part of that coalition. He's sucky, guys. All right, awesome. Okay, so um, so my my next question would be, um, where in the end times do these wars take place? Like, where in the end times timeline, basically, do these wars take place? Uh, so, well, in my personal opinion, and this is, and I changed my mind as I. At this point in, in time where you've asked me this question, um, th so this is, I think that this particular war could happen in the 2020s, right? And kickstart a whole new stage of the prophetic uh, plan. Um, and I'll tell you why I think that. It has to do with the window I have into the role of Persia which is one of the main countries mentioned in this war. Um, apparently, you know, the, the, the first uh, leaders in the war are the main countries, and then the second country mentioned is the main ally. Um, so the Islamic Republic um, 
in 2018, um, Donald Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal, JCPOA. And then he said that he gave Iran 180 days to accept his terms or he would bring maximum sanctions. And it's interesting because the, when the clock started ticking from when he said that, the 180 days, what the 180th day fell on the anniversary when the Islamic Republic took the U.S. embassy hostage. Mm. Now, that's a very important day in Iran. There's you know, celebrations, manifestations, everything. They make a huge deal of it. It was what sealed the power of the revolutionary head, Khomeini, the supreme leader. He started to negotiate with the United States. The first you know, uh, prime minister or president under him wrote a book later, and I don't know if it's true or not because they might just say things. They said that he, he said at least that he was involved in the fact that negotiations were done behind the curtains with Ronald Reagan that Reagan said, don't let the hostages free under Carter, because he'll use that as a, to show how Carter is weak. And then it's interesting because the hostages were released at midnight hmm. after Reagan, Reagan won. And weapons began to flow into the hands of the Supreme Leader as he went to war with Iraq. And that was called you know, the Iran Gate uh, later when it came out that the, those weapons. And so that day of the embassy being taken was seen with hindsight as what sealed the power of the revolutionaries. It really clicked them into place. They were able to take the embassy of the United States and negotiate with America and come out victorious at the other end and begin their rule. And shortly, so now Trump was saying that I'm going to pull out and you have 180 days and the 180th day where all these sanctions would come over Iran fell on that day, on that anniversary of that event. And so mm. even the Shia in Iran felt there was a divine judgment happening here. They felt there was something strange and spooky about how it naturally fell. And so what Trump did um, fractured the power. It made huge difference changes inside of the country's power structure. And he killed Soleimani, right? And you know, there's the ram has two horns, the military horn and the political horn. The, the I know it's the Medes and the Persians, but but there was a military horn that was destroyed, even though the political horn, the supreme leader, the religious horn, stays. And Iran was an ally of Israel until 1979, and then the Islamic Revolution flipped it into an enemy. So there was an ideological, spiritual change. And it's interesting because the Shah of Iran had this entire inauguration um, for his, he had this crowning. Um, in the 1970s, where he went to Persopolis, the ancient Persian capital, and crowned himself as an Achaemenian king and accepted, mm. therefore, the governmental decrees of the Achaemenians, which end the Hebrew scriptures, the decree of Cyrus. So when the Islamic Republic took over, it actually, in a way, reversed that decree, right? There was a spiritual change that happened to prepare. So, so these guys... I think have to be in power, but what Trump did to them created a, a massive shift. The, the, there's something that happened. It was a wound that he gave them, and this wound is deep. Um, I think the 50th year of their rule 
you know, 2029 is the year of Jubilee. And there's a chance hmm. that they're going to. So one of the changes that, that Trump's actions brought about was that the religious came to the forefront. The supreme leader rules through a coalition. And he was convinced by this other faction that if he makes some sort of diplomatic solution with the West, this will prolong his rule because that's the most important thing. The, the supreme, the original guy told them that to keep the rule going is the most important thing. But when the United States pulled out of that deal, the hardliners and the religious that said, no, we should stay true to the fact that this is a spiritual enemy. America's, you know, the representative of Satan. We can't, we can't make a deal with them. They came to the forefront. They said to the Supreme there, you see, we were right. You can't trust them. And so the religious came to the forefront. The hardliners came to the forefront. And they ramped up the whole idea of an apocalyptic war. They've created an entire department in the IRGC that teaches young recruits about Shia eschatology and about the coming of the Mahdi. They're indoctrinating them into this idea. And now they've put to, into place this idea of the United Front strategy of Soleimani. So there is this, the fact that, that there was there was this, the 50th year is coming, uh, they, they were delivered a blow that made them go more into hardline religious uh, apocalyptic mode. Um, they, you know, the, 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 the Russia suddenly has had this problems that has brought them together closer with them and they feel they have this support. Um, and finally, um, I'll, I'll end with this, uh, but I think it's, it's a good story. Um, in 1999, I had this urge, this voice kept coming into my spirit to go tell my dad that if this war happens, it's in Ezekiel, he should disagree with it in his conscience, even if he can't do anything about it. When I went to Iran, uh, there's a whole long story that happened, but it led to a few things. You know, he was baptized, his wife was baptized. Seven other people were baptized. And on the road to Isfahan, we had this UFO sighting close up that led to the creation of UFOs, angels, and gods. And, and his wife said, oh, this is a sign from God to tell us that all that Ali is saying is true. And so that was interesting that I went to deliver this message about Ezekiel and all of these things happened. Now, fast forward to 2018, the last time I was there. Um, my father at this point had passed away. And I was just dealing with the state and I was going to sell a few things that he had left my and my sister to this man who, who decided to buy them. I didn't know who he was, but when I got there, I realized that he was an IRGC guy. He was a hardliner and he was even, he had even done like um, uh, camps with the Supreme leader, like adult Islamic camps, you know, chosen. And, and so I'm like, okay, but whatever he wants to buy my stuff. I have 10 days here. I want to get out. And so we were in the car going to negotiate his country home. And suddenly, as an icebreaker, he brings the phone out and he says, hey, look at this video. And he gives me this video to watch. And it's a video of IRGC command saying to their own people, if the Americans attack, don't worry. This is after Trump has taken pulled out. Don't worry. We have put bombs at the on the ground of the Strait of Hormuz. We'll blow it up and sink the American economy. And this will sink Trump's presidency. So we have this. He wants to militarily come. We will economically retaliate. Because, you know, 90% of the oil of the world goes through the state of Hormuz, uh, the Strait of Hormuz. So, um, and I looked at it and I said, well, 
you know, I mean, the CIA and Mossad and these guys, they're going to pick up on this video. He said, yeah, that's the whole point. It's uh, we're sending a message uh, that this is, you know, we can do that, but we've got this going. And then from there, he took the cat, the phone back and then he launched and suddenly became this other person. He launched into this whole apocalyptic uh, monologue about how the end times have come and God would never give the victory to a whoremonger and a gambler. And, you know, the Americans had made a strategic mistake to uh, select an unrighteous man. And this had put them in a place of spiritual weakness. And that what they, uh, they had been waiting for since the beginning of the revolution to have their apocalyptic war, the time had come. And, you know, Trump would deliver the victory to them because he was an unrighteous man and they were righteous. And he went on. It was, it was huge. He just went on forever. And I was listening to him. And then I thought, OK, do I want to say something? Do I not want to say something? I just want to make a deal. And I don't want to find myself like in a in a in a prison cell or something, you know, by declaring who I am. On the other hand, I'm like, well, I can't stay quiet. I got to say something. And so I was just praying about it. I just launched into into this, you know, I at. And I was going to quote to him. So I said to him, you know, sir, there is another prophecy um, other than what the ones you've just quoted me from Shia eschatology. There's another prophecy in the other book in which there is a battle against Israel and Iran is involved. But in that one, Iran loses. And now I wanted to quote the verse to him about Persia being involved. And here I am trying to find it, first of all, even in English in my head. You know, now I have to translate it into Persian. I hadn't, you know, quoted this prophecy in Persian since I went to talk to my, to my dad, you know, in 1999. And suddenly I opened my mouth. And for about two years, I didn't tell this to anybody because I was so shocked at what happened that I, I was, you know, finally I, I said it to a to, to small group of people and that kind of opened the conversation up. As I opened my mouth, suddenly, I, I kid you not, this is what happened a light appeared on my chest. And in this light, I began to see in slow motion Hebrew script being written in black, slowly like this. And then I opened my mouth and with perfect grammar, perfect punctuation, literally like I was reading the Bible right in front of my face. I quoted the whole thing to him, like the passage about Persia and the list of countries. And if there was like a thickness, like there was like a brick, a concrete between us. Like you could, if you, I felt like if you put your hand in front of my mouth, you'd hit like, you know, a brick wall or something. Like it was like, blah, blah, blah. it was coming out like, blah, 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 blah. and and I like, I wasn't so much seeing him. I was just experiencing this. I was seeing the letters appear, and I was speaking. When I was done, I was myself like, wow, what just happened like in, in my head? And then I noticed that he was bent over on the steering wheel after he'd just done this huge you know, speech. And he looked up at me like this, like, you know, surprised. And it was like someone had drained the color from his face. And he said to me, then he, he said, where is this book? I need to see this prophecy for myself. I need to read this for myself. And at this point, we're driving through a small town and he looked around to see if there's a bookstore. I said, sir, you know, this book is illegal here. This is from the Bible. You can't buy this here. He said, yes. Um, then he looked at me again. He said, what am I doing buying your stuff? I should be selling mine and getting out of here. There was this huge, you know, change on him. That's why that's where actually I draw the insight that when these holy warriors come against Israel and they lose, they will have this exact insight that this man had in the car. Something, some spiritual burden will fall from their heads that's haunting them. 
and they'll be freed from that. But there are people who are really interested in God. They just have been deceived by a principality. And, and so they will start to look, you know, on the Bible side. And that, I think, will ex exasperate the revival that's already started and change the spiritual landscape of the Middle East. And then he said to me, now the conversation relaxed and, and really started. And I was all relaxed, realizing how God intervened. And he said to me, okay, so who are the evangelicals? And I kind of explained that to him. And then his second question was, who are the Masons? That was the second question. So, so for me, these guys that, so when I came back here, home, Canada, I looked back at the story and I thought, wow, twice I had these spiritual experiences in 1999 into 2010, and twice it was related to this prophecy. Once I went to deliver it to my dad and this whole spiritual thing happened. This time I quoted this guy and this whole thing happened. And so looking at the bookends, the two bookends, that this Ezekiel prophecy was the bookend of these two experiences, I thought, wow, I think God is telling me that this war is going to happen under these guys. And these guys are actually quite brittle. I mean, they're strong in the country. They have power and they have power in the region, but they don't have popular support anymore. Over the past 43 years, one by one, every faction of society has pulled away from them, including the religious. You know, the, the people in the seminary wrote a letter recently to the Supreme Leader saying, you know, your interpretation is too narrow, et cetera. So, so now they're isolated to really their hardliners, which is maybe numbers over a million, like they're not like, you know, it's a country of 80 million, but still they're brittle in their isolation. And this war may be in their thinking, their ticket to power because they're doing God's work. They're going to win. They're going to bring the math. They're going to show everybody they were right. So, so I feel like there's a force within the country pushing against them. There is a revolutionary spirit. There's a revival as this new generation is rising, because most people are under, under the age of 40 in the country, right? Um, they were born after the war, with Iraq, after the soldiers came back from the Iran-Iraq war, there was a baby boom, and that's when most people are born. And then there is this um, uh, 50th Jubilee coming. Um, so I, I, that's why I think this war may happen in the 2020s, just looking at this one player and their particular setup um i feel they're coming to the end of their story i feel the the religious have taken over since trump pulled out of jcpoa i feel they they're cornered and they feel that this apocalyptic war is maybe their their ticket to holding power and victory um and yet i see a force rising against them both inside and outside the country so i feel like if these guys are the players they're going to do this and the new government that comes into power after them will be a more of a established, respected world order government that could easily partake in the final Armageddon battle uh, because they'll be part of the, you know, the Antichrist uh, imperial system. Persia is one of the uh, empires of the statue after all. All right. Anyways, so right. <laughs> timeline, I think it's in the 20s and I think it sets up future prophecy. Awesome. Okay, Ryan. Next up, and this this will be the final. What I, what we just went through will be the final question. Then I'll let you, I'll have you guys have ending comments. Okay, so uh, what I what I asked like where does it end up on the timeline will be the final one. So go ahead, Ryan. And uh... sure. So so in terms of the the timing, you know, I don't have a, a a date per se. I do think you know. I always say that I look to 
Revelation and the prophecies and the details of Revelation and what couldn't be achieved, what's left, right? I mean, think about things like the mark of the beast, something that can control buying and selling that's inserted into our hand. That is very feasible now, you know, in this day and age we're living in with RFID technology and even beyond that. Now they can have RFID tattoos, so you don't even have to have a chip anymore. So there are, so in terms of the, the logistics, you know, the, the two witnesses being slain and their bodies are seen by the entire world. Again, even 10 years ago, that wasn't feasible. Now, completely feasible on multiple uh, social media outlets, TikTok, Instagram, it can be all over. But billions of people can watch this event take place. So we, it, all this can happen in our lifetime. And um, where, but in terms of the sequence of the events, Again, I, I think that, you know, the battles are happening in order of that God, Magog is really kicking off the rich tribulation. And then, of course, you have Armageddon, which I think this ties into because you have this language in Ezekiel about the flesh inviting the birds and the beasts to, to, to dine, right, on the flesh of kings, as you see in Revelation at Armageddon. And then the final battle uh, of course, at the end of the millennium is what I call Satan's last strike on the holy city when he's defeated permanently and finally cast into the lake of fire by Yahweh. And so one thing, though, in terms of the timing that I wanted to, to talk about also, uh, Derek made, you know, kind of alluded earlier to the idea of the ten kings, these ten kings that emerge being uh, divine realm, angelic beings. And I think when we think about the timing and everything that's happening in these years, I think, after the first God-Magog war, it's really, again, like the days of Noah in terms of the veil being removed between the, the, the spirit realm and the human realm. So you're going to have this interaction of angelic beings on earth manifesting, beings who have supernatural powers. And I think the Ten Kings, also, I also believe, are going to be angelic fallen angelic rulers right and who are going to come and be a part of this big deception of trying to point the world to antichrist and jerusalem and then ultimately betraying jerusalem right and so you know this again goes back to revelation 17 and 18 and mr Babylon says that they they the 10 kings ultimately they give they they reign with the beast for an hour but then and give their power over to the beast. But then it says that it's in their heart to attack Mr. Babylon, to attack the horn. I think that judgment is going to be at the midpoint, right? When the Antichrist now, when the deception is over, when he now proclaims himself God, he's not presenting himself as a Jewish faithful uh, uh, part of the leader of their Jewish religion anymore. He's going to just present himself as as, as clearing himself, himself God, commit the abomination of desolation, and that's when we see the the, the you know the tide turn. You know when Israel is betrayed uh, by the Antichrist, and so so yeah. So I think the ten kings play a huge role in that, and will and will be a part of the actual attack on Jerusalem, on the holy city. And the thing is also when you talk about the timing is that we talked about Zechariah 14. It's interesting that you have, I think Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 are just taking us right through this exact same period of the Great Tribulation. And it starts in Zechariah 12 with a victorious battle where the enemies of Jerusalem are conquered and Israel is fighting valiantly. And then Zechariah 14, when you get to 14, all of a sudden it's, it, it's a battle where Israel's losing. 
since the city will be ravaged, that half the people will, be, will have to flee. And I think that's the timing of the Antichrist's betrayal of Israel and setting the stage for Armageddon, where now, now there's going to be some suffering and continued purging um, by the enemies of God before Jesus comes. And so what I think ultimately is going to happen is that God is going to have to step in and judge the kingdom of Antichrist, of the beast, to force him out of Jerusalem. And you think about the Ten Kings. I talk about this whole idea of the number 10 being symbolic of God's divine judgment. You know, the Ten Commandments. When, you know, in Numbers chapter 13, the 12 spies, it was 10 spies who said they, they, the Nephilim that God could not defeat the sons of Anak, the Nephilim giants who are blocking the entrance to the promised land and they scouted. And God said, you have tested me these 10 times and so now I will punish you. At the Exodus, there were 10 plagues and God specifically said he was judging not just Egypt, but their gods as well with those 10 plagues. So we see this idea of this number 10 being this, this God's judgment and also um, this spiritual warfare being waged. And so I think the 10 kings will start leading this attack. They will, and, and the the uh, vile judgments, you know, God pours out these judgments that they are specifically targeted at the Antichrist and his worshipers, right? You have the, the boils on the skin, the sun scorches them, and then there's darkness on the throne. It says in the seat of the beast. And I think that's what forces him to flee and rally at Megiddo. And that works. And we talked about Armageddon earlier. I believe Armageddon is a series of battles that's going to stretch from Megiddo, where it starts basically, it's almost like think of like a boxing ring. We have the Antichrist at Megiddo. You have Christ, I believe, will be in Edom with the remnant of Israel who have fled to Edom to be protected supernaturally for the last three and a half years. And then they, they meet in Jerusalem. It ultimately would be in Jerusalem, I believe, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley. And we talk about that, too. of course, you see this, this in Zechariah 14, where Jesus is going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and, and, and the mountain separates. And I believe the last, because, you know, it's it says that when Jerusalem is being attacked, it says that uh, in Zechariah 14, that a remnant will remain, will not be cut off from the city. So there are still going to be faithful believers. And I believe when the Antichrist is coming from Megiddo, Coming south, and this I think, and I believe his war path is actually detailed in Isaiah ten. And we talked about the Assyrian, the path he takes, that they, that the the final Israelites, uh, uh, Jewish believers, will flee when that mountain, when Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, says it will separate, it will split, it will split in half, north and south. And I believe that's a repetition of the Exodus, that just like the Red Sea parted to set up. Pharaoh to let, allow the Israelites to, to escape and set up Pharaoh for his doom. I believe it's, it's going to be exact repetition where the mountain now separates in half. The Israelites flee through the valley that is created supernaturally in that moment. And as the Antichrist pursues, that's where Jesus will destroy him in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley, which of course is in between the temple and the Mount of Olives. So I think that's how it will all, in terms of the timing, culminate right in the Holy City. <laughs> Derek, next up. Well, I don't know what the dates are, but it's awfully close. Um, we look at a number of geopolitical things out there. Ali, I think, summarized a lot better than, than I could have, because I wasn't aware of a lot of this stuff, uh, what was going on inside Iran. But uh, certainly what we've seen with the uh, the rapprochement, to use a French word, the... Um, 
restoration of relations between the Saudis and um, Iran is mind boggling. I, I didn't see that coming. Um, but I don't understand Islam as well as, as you do. Uh, but I, what I do know is that there's been a, centuries of, of division between Shia and Sunni. And that is um, not a small thing that we in the West shouldn't um, take lightly. That is, that is really huge. You've also got a, a, um, a split in the global economy that's developing. The BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, mm-hmm. okay, South Africa, yeah. soon to include Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Iran, um, all banding together. So you've got about 60% of the world's population and a big percentage of the the, uh, natural resources between Russia and Arabia. You've got a huge chunk of the oil and and Iran with natural gas as well, uh, which of course the Chinese love because they're gonna uh, take advantage of that. But what we in the West have not really uh, also heard much about is the um, the fact that China's one-child policy that they enforced since uh, the days of Mao, 60 years, has worked a little too well. The United Nations demographers predict that by the time this century ends, China may have shrunk from 1.6 billion to as few as uh, 900 million, and some put it as low as 700 million, which means they're getting older, which means you've got a lot fewer men of fighting age so if China is going to provoke something to try to um, make the 21st century, the century of China, just as the 20th was the century of America, to get revenge for the, what they call the century of shame from the 1830s until the end of World War II, where they were abused and um, exploited by the Western powers, uh, the Chinese are going to have to make a move soon. So I think the world is really going to be turned upside down here in the next few years because of what has been going on geopolitically with the BRICS nations on one side. There's some reports now, by the way, that they plan at their meeting coming up in the fall to launch a new gold-backed currency to counter the power of the United States dollars, the world's de facto reserve currency. And with the Saudis on board with this plan, if the Saudis are on board with this plan, um, because their insistence on U.S. dollars in payment for their oil has made the United States dollar the world's reserve currency. The United States dollar is really backed by Arab oil. I mean, it could be, you know, and it almost was under Donald Trump, backed by American oil. Uh, but if they uh, proceed with this and decouple from the United States, and this is why Janet Yellen, as we're recording this, by the way, has just spent Uh, several days in China. And I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures or video of Janet Yellen constantly bowing to her Chinese counterparts. Um, I think that uh, Biden or somebody behind the scenes made it uh, very clear to the Secretary of the Treasury that she needed to make nice with the Chinese because 1.6 billion people, uh, world's potentially largest global economy here in the next few years, we can't decouple otherwise the U.S. dollar will collapse. That may be, by the way, why the United States does not play a role in end times prophecy. If our dollar collapses and our economy collapses so that our economic influence is no greater than the percentage of our population among population. I mean, you know, what do we got? 350 billion, 370 million rather, 370 million compared to 1.6 billion Chinese, 1.7 billion Indians. Um, We have it in our minds here in the United States that we are the world's 
only true superpower. And recent events are kind of showing the cracks in that facade. And I think the BRICS meeting that is coming up this year is going to, are going to highlight those even more. Uh, the fact that we've not been able to push Ukraine to victory here uh, in uh, the war with Russia is, is another clue that we are not as powerful geopolitically and militarily as we would like to think we are. We are overextended like the late stages of, of the Roman Empire. Um, so having said all of that, um, what is going to happen is going to happen sooner rather than later. Uh, I know that uh, Tom Horn, when his book, The Wormwood Prophecy, came out a few years ago, was we were recording a program. This was still in the old Skywatch TV studio. And as Tom was talking about this, uh, if the, the prophecy of Wormwood in Revelation 8 is connected, and there are a lot of ifs here, so this is all speculative. If it's connected to asteroid Apophis, okay, and that's supposed to make a near pass of Earth so close that it passes inside the orbits of some of our uh, satellites on April 13th of 2029, and if, as some believe, that marks the midpoint of the seven-year Great Tribulation, again, we got if, if, um, then if you back up three and a half years, okay, so what would the beginning point of the Great Tribulation be? That points to October 13th of 2025, which just happens to be the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. That was a seven-day festival in ancient Israel that was the most important on the calendar, because during that seven-day period, Jews would sacrifice seven bulls on the first day, eight bulls on the second day, nine bulls on the third day. You see the pattern. At the end of the seven days, you've sacrificed 70, representing the gods of the nations. In other words, all of them. The rest of the world, under the influence of these fallen angels, it was God's reminder to his people that he was rescuing them, saving them, delivering them from the hands of these rebellious Elohim, these rebellious sons of God. So wouldn't it be interesting if that was the day, the Feast of Tabernacles in 2025, where God decides to take us out of here? I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm not planning for it to happen. I'm going to keep working as though we're going to be here as long as we draw breath, but I'd be okay with that. Um, because interestingly enough, April 13th of 2029 would be seven days after Passover, which you go back to the uh, book of uh, book of Joshua, and it was seven days after they celebrated the Passover, seven days of marching in a circle around Jericho, that the walls came tumbling down. Is that going to happen? I don't know. Could be. Oops. There we go. It's so interesting. Definitely. Okay. So uh, now I just give it to Ali and just say any last words for our audience. You know. What could we do to prepare? Anything that you could, you want to say to our audience before we get off? Uh, yeah, well, the prophecy of Ezekiel in 38-39, it's interesting how God is the one that puts a hook and brings the enemies. He is the one that defeats them. They don't really even get too deep into, into Israel in the way this prophecy is written. So one important point is that these prophecies are not put here to scare us but to comfort us to show the sovereignty of god that even 2500 years ago god already was aware of the schemes of the enemy like them in the book of job 
he is sovereign over even what the enemy can do. And so when we see such tremendously scary things unfold on the stage of the world, we, as the ambassadors of Christ, can go forward and say to people, God has this covered. He has this in his hands. He's told us beforehand that it's under his control. And the fruits of this, like in the story of Job, is going to actually result in blessing. People are going to become aware of God. Israel is, the nations are. God is going to be glorified through this. God has got his hand over the enemy. His, their, their weapons, you know, they don't work. Uh, he brings them. He defeats them. He buries them. Um, so, so even though it looks very uh, scary, you know, have faith in the Lord. This is a great opportunity to share the faith, actually, and to comfort people with a message of peace and the providence of the Lord uh, through the prophetic word and the guarantee of the prevailing and victory of his purposes over the enemy as we move forward towards the utopia, which is the millennial reign of the Lord. Uh, these are the birth banks. So that's that's how I, I want people to, to, to see it, is in, in the light of God's uh, providential care and power. Amen to that. And uh, Ryan, next up. Yeah, Ali said it beautifully, you know, it's the Apostle Paul, right? He says comfort, you know, comfort each other with these words, right? And that's the beauty of prophecy. And that's what God wants us to know. He wants us to trust him and show and prove to us, right? Our, the Christian faith is not blind faith. God wants to demonstrate his knowledge his prophecy. He wants us to be have that comfort. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I agree completely. And I just hope and pray that there are people uh, watching and listening who don't believe in God, who doubt the Bible, who are questioning, who might believe another faith and realize that there's no other book written in human history that can tell the future, much less with the accuracy. You look at the details you've heard today, the nations, the locations, the timing, the repetition, the Bible is the only book that can do that. So, you know, so I, you know, for those who, uh, who are listening or watching who don't believe or are wondering or maybe, you know, on the fence about this whole Christianity thing, I hope this helped, you know, I hope this has helped to give you some encouragement and some, some desire and some, some curiosity to see that, wow, there's a lot going on in this old book, the Bible, that has a dramatic and remarkable relation and implication for exactly what's happening right in the headlines today. And obviously for believers, for our brothers and sisters, just stay encouraged. You know, the, the end times are coming and yes, there are going to be some devastating judgments on this world that they're going to that this world has never seen before, frankly. And, you know, Jesus said that men's heart failing them for fear when they see what's going to come upon the earth. People are going to drop dead when they see these beings, you know, the ancient the, the gods of the ancient worlds of, of Greek mythology who are real beings coming on this earth. And so. What does that mean for us? We have to use that to to, to inspire and, and to generate our witness, right? We want to be Noah and get people on the ark before all this happens, because it's coming. It's coming. And it might be even sooner than we, than we think. It might be a few years from now. It might be 2025, right? And so, you know, that's just let this be an encouragement to get out there and share the gospel. And the time is short. And so we want to get as many people into the love and salvation of our Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, um, as soon as possible. So uh, that's that's the message. 
Amen to that. And uh, next up, Derek. There, there's not much to add, but you know the precision of prophecy is is astonishing. And just to add to what Ryan said, when you look at Daniel chapter nine, and this is where a lot of us get the idea that there's that final seven year period called the Great Tribulation, the prophecy of seventy weeks that was given to Daniel by uh, the angel Gabriel, seventy weeks decreed for his people and for the holy city, and we are now in that pause between week week number sixty nine and week seventy. What blew our minds? I heard Chuck Missler refer to this years ago, and we looked it up. About 100 years ago, a fellow by the name of Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book called The Coming Prince, where he went and analyzed the prophecy of the 70 weeks to try to determine whether or not Daniel accurately prophesied the arrival of Jesus, which would be the end of the 69th week when the Messiah is cut off, an anointed one is cut off. And Sir Robert Anderson was no slouch. He was an investigator in Scotland Yard who worked on the Jack the Ripper murders. So there's a couple of different connections here between Jack the Ripper and Mount Hermon, uh, the fellow who was the commissioner of Scotland Yard when those Ripper murders began in 1888 was Sir Charles Warren, who found that stone inside the temple on the summit of Mount Hermon that said, those who swore an oath proceed from here by order of the most high and holy God. So, uh, and that, that stone, by the way, is in the British Museum in London now, interestingly enough. Anyway. Sir Robert Anderson approached this with the, the rigor of a detective, because that's what he was. He went to the Royal Astronomer at Greenwich and said, okay, when was the beginning of the new year in 440 BC, when King Artaxerxes issued the decree to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple? And so he calculated to the date on the Julian calendar. And Anderson wisely figured that God giving this prophecy to a Hebrew prophet was talking about a 360-day prophetic year, not a 365-day year. And so when he calculated it out from the date that the royal astronomer had calculated that the first sliver of the new moon would be seen in 440 BC from somewhere in Persia, he calculated that it fell on Good Friday and I forget the year exact, 30 AD, I believe. But anyway, Anderson was convinced that this nailed to the day Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Chuck Missler, who was a brilliant man, was convinced. And that's where I first heard this. And it blew my mind. And I had the interview, I had the, the blessing to interview Chuck Missler a couple of times. And he said that was what convinced him to study prophecy. Because even if, as skeptics claim, Daniel didn't write the book of Daniel, that it was written by somebody else after the return from Babylon. It was still written before the events prophesied in Daniel, all of this stuff between a king of the north and a king of the south, which was basically the wars between the Greek kings of Syria and, and Egypt, the successors of Alexander the Great, because it was translated from Hebrew into Greek before some of those wars took place, the Septuagint translation. So he nailed it supernaturally, whoever wrote the book of Daniel, and I believe it was Daniel, nailed all of that, and he nailed the arrival of Jesus, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, to the day. And Sir Robert Anderson, who is a sober-minded individual, a theologian as well as a police detective, when he wrote that section of his book, The Coming Prince, was writing it in all caps. I mean, you could hear him saying, he got it exactly right. Do you understand what this means? 
it means you can trust the prophecies of the Bible, that they will come true. We can document this one. And he didn't have the internet and Google. I mean, like I said, he had to write to the royal astronomer and wait for the royal astronomer to take out his compass and sextant or whatever and he had and figure it out on pen and paper and then send it back. This to me is mind-blowing. So when we look at this stuff and realize that this was inspired by the same Holy Spirit that inspired Daniel to nail all of those prophecies so precisely that there is no natural explanation. We need to be prepared for these days that are coming. We have the answers. People will, people will be freaking out at what is coming on the earth in the years ahead. But we can say, look, we've got a book that foretold all of this, and we can show you how to guarantee your safety and your the safety of your family. Yes, the times ahead will be difficult. But we can we can show you how to secure your future, not just in this life, but for all eternity. And we can prove it because we can go back and show you how these prophecies foretold the coming of the Messiah the first time precisely, which means we can trust the prophecies of his return just as it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed by the precision of the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. So when all of this happens, however it happens, whenever it happens, we just need to be prepared to show the love of Christ to the people around us who will be literally out of their minds with fear, preparing to share with them the love of Christ and um, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And those days, days are coming soon. Definitely. And uh, thank you guys so much for this, this show. This is amazing. Um, You know, you guys understand what we're going through. Like we're going through these times right now, you know, the end times. So we have to make sure guys, like I always say, man, concentrate on, you know, having your relationship with God, concentrate on having a relationship with Jesus, concentrate on reading the Bible, you know, understand how they, they, they all just intertwined everything so beautifully, you know, and the Bible is so interesting and amazing. And, and I just, I, it's so captivating and it's captivating me. Like, you know, in this, in this moment, listening to these gentlemen speak and that the Bible is no joke, you know, this stuff is coming. And like he said, it's so accurate that I just, you know, I just want you guys as listeners to understand that, um, you know, fear is something that, that is not of God. God is not trying to cause fear to you guys. What, what's happening is, you know, he just wants you to get closer to him. It should bring you and draw you closer, draw you near and understand that God has you. You know, there can be 10,000 people dying to your right, 10,000 people dying to your left. But when you're, when you're, when God has your back, you're not going to die. You're going to be good. So make sure that you guys just get closer to God. And, and like I said, and this is a beautiful and awesome explanation. And I appreciate everybody that, that was on this, this panel. Thank you. Um, Reach out you guys to now reach out, but please guys uh, check out, uh, their their information, you know, um, thinkagainproductions.com, The Second Coming of Saturn. Please check out these books. All this type of information is in these books. The Final Nephilim, Judgment of the Nephilim as well. All this information is in these books. Thank you guys so much. And I, and I always like to end this in prayer, okay? Thank you guys so much for listening, though. Um, Father God, in the name of Jesus, we appreciate everything you do, God. Thank you so much for these gentlemen and, and the knowledge that uh, that was expressed on the show. And um, thank you, God, so much for your word. I know that the Bible's illegal. Um, Ali was saying it's illegal in certain countries, and, and we're able to have the Bible at our at our fingertips. 
We appreciate you giving us your word and giving us the ability to read and, and to research and, and uh, you know, to be able to use the internet as, as, a, as a source to, to study and research your word, Lord, and, and, and not of the evil that it does do in, in other circumstances, God. We appreciate you so much for uh, giving the knowledge to these gentlemen, and uh, everything was all inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we appreciate everything you do for us, God. Thank you for the food that we eat, the water we drink, the air that we breathe, and thank you so much for your protection. I want to ask you, please, to protect these gentlemen. Um, obviously they're, they're, they're out, uh, you know, spreading the truth. And, um, and, and I just want to say, please send a legion of angels around their families and protect them on their travels and how they travel to different conferences and all that stuff. So please protect them. And we love you so much, God in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Wow. <clears throat> Seriously, God, this is probably amen. one of the best episodes that we've had. We appreciate everything you guys do. And, uh, thank you guys so much for everything you do for, for God and, and for the industry. And thank you guys so much for listening. Please subscribe and please share this podcast with everybody you can share it with. God bless you.